This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This is Peter and Tricia welcoming you to Great News and God's Views on Free FM 89.0 Independent Community Media. We invite you to listen every Sunday for a presentation of historic Bible-based Christianity, highlighting preaching of the Word, classic songs, hymns and spiritual songs. Our worship theme today, Sharing Christ is the Most Joyous Task We Can Experience. The Journey of Joy Roy Clements, a pastor in England, tells the story of his decision to go into the ministry. He was earning a lucrative income in the science industry, but knew God was calling him to preach the word. One day, as he shared his desire with one of his co-workers, he heard the typical response. It seems a bit of a waste. Why would anyone in his right mind leave a good job to tell others about Christ? When Christ says, Go, I am sending you, One does not argue. Just begin the journey of joy and watch in wonder all that God can accomplish through you. In Luke 10, 1-20, Jesus commissions the 72 apostles sent out ones to go before him and tell the local villagers that the kingdom of God is near. As the messengers leave and return, their journeys reveal four key insights about sharing the good news of Christ. We read from Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed other seventy also, and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place, whither he himself would come. Therefore said he unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the labourers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth labourers into his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Carry neither purse, nor scrip, nor shoes, and salute no man by the way. And into whatsoever house ye first enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if the Son of Peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall turn to you again. And in the same house remain eating and drinking such things as they give, for the labourer is worthy of his fire. Do not go from house to house. And into whatever city ye enter, and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you, and heal the sick that are therein, and say unto them, The kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. But into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you not, go your ways out into the streets of the same, and say, Even the very dust of your city, which cleaveth on us, we do wipe off against you. Notwithstanding ye be sure of this, that the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. He that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me, and he that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. And the seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through your name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven, Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, 
and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Pray for more workers. The first truth Jesus discloses about missionary work is a great need for more workers. Christians willing to sacrifice the comforts of home to go into the world and tell others about Jesus. Thus he exhorts his disciples to pray for more people willing to participate. One of the problems churches confront is the unwillingness to go and tell. They expect unbelievers to come, sit and listen. Jesus places the proverbial shoe on the other foot. It's the responsibility of Christians to take the message to the lost, not to pray that they find the front door of a worship centre. Go in faith. Jesus makes sure the speak apostles know what to expect. They're not embarking on a leisurely vacation through Samaria. Rather, Jesus reminds them of the hostility waiting along the way. The essential component in accomplishing anything for God is the realisation that you can't. God will accomplish what he desires through you, never the other way round. To show an understanding of this fact, the apostles are told not to take anything with them, no money, not even an extra pair of shoes. Why? God will provide for all their needs, food and lodging included. It's one thing to say it, but to leave home without your credit card demonstrates the total dependence on God. Anticipate success and failure. The third truth seems obvious. Some will accept the message and some will reject it. No middle ground exists in the response to Jesus. Either one accepts him wholeheartedly or one rejects him altogether. What surprises us is the direct link between the message and the messenger. When the lost reject Christ, they reject Christians and vice versa. In other words, as believers share the message of hope, they represent Christ himself. Jesus says, when you speak, they hear my words. This fact removes all the pressure. If someone accepts Christ, praise God. If they refuse to listen, it is God they refuse to hear. Bring home the joy. The final truth of this passage is found in the last section. In this age of financial security, one cannot imagine the utter joy available for those who live day to day on pure faith in God to supply material and spiritual resources. As Christians submit to God's calling, they soon discover the greatest reward to life being used by God to accomplish his purpose. The apostles experience the call, the provision, the power and the product. To lead someone to Christ and witness the transformation brings the greatest feeling of joy ever known. To be used by God, to bring glory to God, to lead others to God, these are the incomparable rewards for abandoning the temporal enticements of this world. The next time you feel the Lord calling you to share him with others, do not hesitate to begin the journey of joy. You may encounter resistance, rejection, even satanic hostilities but God will provide the necessary resources for accomplishing his goals. One should not underestimate the possibilities because one thing is guaranteed. When the Lord calls you to serve him, it will never be a bit of a waste. 
Our first music today, To God Be The Glory, a hymn with lyrics by Fanny Crosby and tuned by Willard Howard Dwayne. It was first published in 1875 and was extremely popular in Britain even before publication. It failed to achieve wide usage in the United States and was included in few hymnals. In 1954, Cliff Barrow, song leader for Billy Graham, was handed a copy with the suggestion it be added to the songbook for the London Crusade. It was so popular that he included it again later that year in the Crusade in Nashville, Tennessee. Fanny Crosby was blinded at six weeks of age in 1820. By the age of ten, she'd memorised the first four books in both Testaments. We know that she learned everything by having it read by others because it was 15 years before Braille had been invented. Her mother once sympathised with Fanny about her blindness and she told her mother that if she were offered a sight back that day, she would not accept it. She felt that if she had a normal sight, she would probably not have written any of the hymns. She also noted the first face she would see would be Jesus. She attended the New York School for Blind for 35 years, both as student and teacher, and began writing hymns at the age of 40. She wrote over 8,000. To God be the glory.
Persecuted Church Prayer Points Azia Bibi We praise God today as 10 days ago news broke that Azia Bibi, a Christian in Pakistan, has been acquitted of the blasphemy charges that stood against her. Thus her death sentence has now been overturned after she spent 10 years in prison. France and Spain had offered asylum to Azia Bibi. However, things have turned in an ugly direction. Angry progress have taken place in Pakistan over the last few days, where Islamist protectors shut down motorways and burnt cars, forced the closure of schools and caused a billion dollars worth of damage. Islamists have stated that they would shut down Pakistan until Asia is hanged. The Pakistani government have been trying to calm the protests for the whole of last week. In a very sad turn of events, the Pakistani government, in an attempt to stop the widespread protests, have signed an agreement with the Aslamist protest group. The agreement involves the government now pledging they will now work to stop her exiting the country. This is very sad and disappointing, as if Asia cannot leave Pakistan, there is a very, very high chance that she will be executed on Pakistani soil by one of the many Islamist protesters. 1 Corinthians 12.26 says that we are one body. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. Please pray that the government would realise its fundamental responsibility to protect the life of its citizens and allow Azia Bibi to have the freedom to leave Pakistan. Please pray for the Islamic population of the country that these angry people would have a realisation of the truth which is, just like the Apostle Paul did as he went from persecutor of believers to a follower of Christ. You are listening to... Great News and God's Views on Free FM 89.0 Independent Community Media. We continue with All Things Bright and Beautiful. This was written by Cecil Francis Alexander in the mid-19th century. Born in Dublin, Ireland, her religious work was influenced by contacts with the Oxford Methodist movement. By the 1840s she was already writing hymns and works for children. Among her hymns are There is a Green Hill Far Away and Once in Royal David City and the one we play now, All Things Bright and Beautiful. This hymn may have been inspired by a verse from Samuel Taylor Coleridge's The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. He prayeth best who loveth best, all things great and small. For the dear God who loveth us, he made and loveth all.
Foiled again. If Deuteronomy is conceived as a series of speeches by Moses to the Israelites just prior to their entrance into the Promised Land, then the speech of our text is very nearly, to borrow Ecclesiastes' words, the end of the matter. Moses had reviewed the course of events from Horeb to the then present day and restated the precepts of the law along the way. In this concluding speech, Moses sets forth the promises and conditions of blessing and the nearness of the word of God. We read from Deuteronomy chapter 9, beginning at verse 14. And the Lord thy God will make thee plenteous in every work of thine hand, in the fruit of thy body, and in the fruit of thy cattle, and in the fruit of the land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over thee for good, as he rejoiced over thy fathers. If thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in this book of law, and if thou turn into the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, for this commandment which I command thee this day is, is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that thou shouldest say, Who shall go up to, for us to heaven and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it? 
neither is it beyond the sea that thou shouldest say, Who shall go over the sea for us, and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very nigh unto thee, in thy mouth and in thy heart, that thou mayest do it. In the immediate context, God had given the blessings and curses he wanted the people to proclaim to one another from Mount Gerasim and Elibel once they had crossed over the Jordan. God warned of dispersion and captivity as punishment for rebellion, which fate ultimately befell the tribes at the hands of the Assyrians and Babylonians. But the verses leading up to our text promise a restoration of the people's fortunes conditioned upon their repentance, which was later the very experience of the Jews under the Medo-Persians. The people's eventual repentance would foil the curses and renew the blessings of God. The promises of blessings. In an agricultural pastoral society, what could be more utopian than a life characterised by the production of quality, profitable artefacts, of numerous thriving children, of plenteous prolific herds and of bountiful healthy crops? What was it worth to have a guarantee from the Lord that such would be one's lot? Yet it is not the truth that wealth is a true sign of God's approval, nor is it the truth that poverty is a sign of divine displeasure. Thousands of God's children have lived and died in poverty. That is a perversion of the faith to prevent Christianity as a means to wealth. New Zealand Christians sometimes struggle with the ethics of wealth, for so many are so abundantly blessed. And here Moses promises prosperity as the reward for faithfulness. Is not the sin covetous instead? But covetousness is just as much a sin for him who has not and wants much as for her who has much and wants more. In biblical terms, a sovereign God entrusts much or little according to his own purpose. Wealth may come from God, but it may be more of a test than a blessing. Wealth may become one person's share, poverty may be the stumbling block of another. Neither state is virtuous or of evil in itself. Both the rich and poor can be faithful to God, but the scriptures generally warn that the rich are in the graver danger of unfaithfulness. The conditions of blessing. In this context, the blessings of verse 9 were envisaged as coming to that penitent generation that had learned a hard lesson from captivity. But the restoration of good fortune is consensational. If you obey, if you give his commandment, if you turn to the Lord. Obedience has fallen from grace in the modern church. Some have never heard and would be puzzled to hear that the New Testament often speaks of obeying the gospel. Many have it that any call for obedience to God will inherently impinge upon and disannul grace. But it is our limitations of reason that set up a biological contradiction between the two. We by no means earn our salvation by obedience, but neither is grace an exemption from obedience or a license to sin. Perhaps disobedience and sin must finally be resolved as a paradox or a dialectic, but neither should be sacrificed to the other on the altar of one's systemic theology. Twice in the space of five verses, God calls for all your heart, all your soul. Such is the essence of the greatest commandment. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy strength 
and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. How often are we are double-minded, trying to serve double masters? God and money. What could God do with an army of Christians today saying, no compromise, all of me for thee? The nearness of God's word. Moses anticipates a childlike response from the people. It's all too hard, we can't reach it. Moses assures them that there is no excuse in terms of the will of God being unknown, obscure or inaccessible. It will be in their mouths, for they were soon to speak it from Gerazim and Abel. Indeed, they were called to, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and should talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. The problem with all this is that there is judgment in New Testament terms that the law was impossible for the fallen children of Adam to obey. The so-called Jerusalem Conference debated the incumbency of the law upon Gentile converts to Christianity. It was a law Peter called, Now therefore why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. Why did Paul see that the letter killeth? If not in terms of the practical impossibility of keeping the law perfectly? And no wonder, for James write, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point is guilty of all. This seems to be the global issue Paul struggled to come to grips with in Romans 7. There he seemed to conclude that while the law is a holy and just, and while he would have no argument with Moses about the law's intelligibility or accessibility, he concluded that sin nonetheless uses the law to slay us, and that we are left without one plea, except the blood of Jesus, gospel to the core. Paul applies Deuteronomy 30, 11-14 in a unique way in Romans 10, 6-8. There he applies the words to expect the attitude of faith. He points there seems to be that faith does not demand, like Thomas, that Christ ascend from the tomb or descend from heaven and make a personal appearance before it will conceive. Faith simply believes the testimony and is blessed without having seen. This is Peter and Tricia thanking you for joining us today for Great News and God's Views on Free FM 89.0 Independent Community Radio. We invite you to listen every Sunday from 9.30 to 10 for a presentation of historic Bible-based Christianity, highlighting preaching of the Word, classic songs, hymns and spiritual songs. We use only the King James Bible, the authorised version. 89.0 is live-streamed from freefm.org.nz or tune in and now on Amazon Echo devices using the Free FM 89 Alexa skill. We would love to hear your comments on this show. We can be contacted by email at greatnews376 at gmail.com. That is greatnews376 at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.